Hi, I'm Ashley Nichols. I'm Casey Boyd-Swan. And this is the Growing Democracy Podcast, a space for citizens, experts, and advocates to create community together. Each week, we invite a guest to talk about civic engagement, governance, and how to grow our democracy. This episode is part of a series on governing during pandemic. We're talking with local elected officials, public officials, and community activists to learn more about how local governments and organizations are responding and adapting to our shifting needs during this public health crisis. Yeah, Ashley, we've been spending a lot of time um, talking to folks about various uh, interesting things that, frankly, I didn't always know a lot about. But uh, in many spaces, it comes back to essential work, right? And, and essential work can cover a variety of spaces. So like last time when we were discussing green spaces, but in this episode, we're really thinking about the intersection of essential work and also non-traditional education. With us today is Hardy Kern. He is an animal program specialist at the Columbus Zoo and Aquarium, where his day is split between caring for a wide variety of animals and conducting educational outreach. He has a Bachelor of Science degree in zoology from The Ohio State University and is currently completing his Master's in Public Administration at Kent State University. He served on the Board of Directors for the American Association of Zookeepers and Arcticus Bitterong Conservation. He hopes to use his experience for wildlife education and graduate training to further community-based conservation and eventually found a wildlife-focused nonprofit organization. Thank you for joining us, Hardy. Very, very glad to be here, Dr. Boyd Swan. Excellent. Can you tell us a little bit about your role at the Columbus Zoo and what drew you to this position? Absolutely. So I think every kid at some point goes through like you know you go through a dinosaur phase and then an animal phase and then a baseball phase or whatever it might be and I just never grew out of that animal phase so I grew up loving animals loving wildlife I spent as much time outside as I could my parents were not really outdoorsy but they were extraordinarily supportive and so once my mom and dad both saw that that's where I set my sights on was animals. They were like, okay, if you're going to do this, then we're going to support you, but you're going to do it big. And so I spent every free moment I had volunteering at the Pittsburgh Zoo. I grew up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, or working at animal hospitals or shelters, or I worked at a horse ranch for a little while when I was a kid. And then as I was getting older, I was thinking more more about what I wanted to do. And I was convinced for so long that I wanted to be a veterinarian. And so the Ohio State University was great for a few reasons. It was uh, really well known for their vet school and had some really great wildlife and agricultural programs. It was three hours from my parents' house, which was the perfect distance to where I could go and still get home for holidays, but it was far enough that if they wanted to come visit, they had to like call me ahead of time. So that was very appealing. And I went there and I was convinced I was going to be a veterinarian. And in all, like I said, all the summers leading up to it, I'd spent a lot of time volunteering at the Pittsburgh Zoo and working there, mostly in their education and outreach department. And when I was at Ohio State, I volunteered at the vet school and I worked there briefly. And I quickly discovered that I didn't want to work on animals. I wanted to work with animals. And so I thought about it a little more and said, okay, well, maybe I want to be a wildlife researcher. So I did an undergraduate 
research thesis, like three years of research on rattlesnake behavior. And I quickly discovered I really like taking care of the snakes. I really like talking to people about my snakes and the research I was doing with them. But the actual crunching numbers, writing papers, presenting wasn't getting me as fired up as I thought it was going to. I like communicating the science, but not necessarily at that point in my life being the person sitting there doing it. And so I kind of looked back at everything I'd done and realized that where I was happiest is where I was taking care of animals and talking to people about animals and getting people excited about wildlife and conservation. And, you know, I was president of my high school environmental club, all that good stuff. And I quickly realized that that's where I I thought that my passions lied. I got a seasonal job between my junior and senior year of college at the Columbus Zoo. And then the year after that, they had a part-time job open up in our African Savannah department. And so I moved into that. And then that became a full-time job about a year and a half later. So I really love that I'm able to interact with animals and build relationships with them. I get to train them. I've gotten to help hand raise a lot of animals. But my favorite part of my job is being able to bring animals into the community or talk to people about animals and get them super excited to the point where they want to make a difference for wildlife. If I can have somebody walk away and go, wow, I didn't know that about a cheetah or I thought vultures were gross, but now I realize they're actually really spazzy and cute and awesome and helpful in nature. That's a day well spent for me. So, Hardy, obviously, we're in the pandemic right now, so things might look a little different. But before this, what did a typical day look like at the zoo? What I love about my job is that we don't really have a typical day, and that's part of the draw to it. There are things that we have to do every single day. So every day, we show up at 730. And you first go around, you make sure that all of the animals did well overnight. So just making sure that everyone has water still. If anybody, um, you know, if there was an injury that occurred overnight or something, we get eyes on it. But usually everyone's just sleepy and starting to wake up or the nocturnal animals are just settling down for their night, which is our daytime. And then after that, we every single day are doing a lot of cleaning, diet preparation, We provide the animals with new enrichment, which are opportunities for them to exhibit natural behaviors, which is a fancy way of saying we have them toys and fun stuff to do all during the day. And that's my one of my favorite things I get to do. We do a lot of training with them. We do a lot of presentations to the public. So in the department I work in, we do cheetah run demonstrations three times a day where we have our cheetahs run on a lore course and show off how fast they can go. We do free flight bird shows. We do training demonstrations with hyenas and aardvarks for the public. And then every single day, we have to make sure that everyone stays happy, healthy, mentally and physically engaged all throughout the day. But what I like about it is that you have to be really flexible because every single day, you know, you could be starting a training session with a hyena. And then two minutes later, you have to walk a cheetah out to a new yard. And then the presentation that you thought you had tomorrow actually got moved to this afternoon. And then the CEO shows up with a group of donors and you have to take them on a quick tour of the building. So you have to be dynamic and flexible. And I really like that. So what's appealing to me is that every day there's a list of responsibilities we have to get through that we enjoy getting through. So providing the animals a safe, clean, healthy, engaging environment. And then on top of that, the rest of your day could be you know, taking a group of animals to a nursing home or to a school or doing an interview on a local radio station, or you might be at the zoo all day power washing some of our holding stalls and stuff like that. But every day is different. 
And that's what I really love about it. That's fantastic. As somebody who spends a lot of time at the zoo as a participant, it's fun to talk to somebody who's on the other side of it um, and, and thinking through all the work that goes into making my experience as either a member or someone that's there to enjoy the zoo, um, you know, a reality. So I, my question for you, Artie, is do zoos see themselves as important spaces for civic engagement? What, what might that mean um, to you and the work that you're doing? Yeah, I, I really, I really like that question because honestly, before taking the course that I'm in right now at Kent State, I've not really thought about how big a role advocacy can play in pretty much everything. And now that I'm going on different websites for projects that we're doing in the course, just about every conservation group website that I go on has an advocacy tab on their website. And I've just never noticed it before. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I really wish I had seen this before. This is so interesting. So one of the things that I really like about zoos, they did a study about 10 years ago, and they looked at why people visit zoos and aquariums. And just to give an idea of numbers, there are about 2,500 animal institutions in the country that are licensed by the United States Department of Agriculture. So we fall under the USDA. Zoos are classified as a museum, so we kind of fall into that silo as well. But of those 2,500 less than 300 of them are accredited by an association called the Association of Zoos and Aquariums, which has its own independent rigorous set of standards that say you need to commit so much of your budget to conservation. These are the different parameters we ask that you fall into. There's a, it's a really high level, difficult to qualify for organization, but one that we're happy to be a part of. And the reason why I bring that up, it's a long-winded way of saying there are more people who visit accredited zoos and aquariums every year than visit all professional sporting events combined. So we have a humongous visitor basis. The difference, though, is that when you go to a football game or a baseball game, you're mostly seeking recreation. And the study that they did in zoos and aquariums found that people primarily visit zoos and aquariums for recreation, you go because you want to have a nice day with your family, you want to be outside, you want to see animals doing really cool things, but you are open to educational messages. If someone goes out at halftime at an Ohio State football game and starts talking to you about heart health, you're going to tune them out pretty quickly, most likely. They're well-intentioned, but that's not the mental space that you're in. When you're at a zoo or aquarium, though, our guests want to go there to have an enriching experience, to have a nice time with their family but they're open to those conservation, education, environmental messages, which is really, really important. So we are somewhere that we want to get people excited about wildlife, but we also know that we're a place where you can come, you can receive information to hopefully turn into action. And the main reason why we exist is for conservation of species in the wild. So we do a lot of work supporting different wildlife conservation groups across the globe. The Columbus Zoo supports over 70 conservation projects globally. A big handful of them are in the United States, but we're on literally every single continent supporting wildlife conservation. And a big part of wildlife conservation is doing things through a civic engagement space. So it's great if you're going out and funding scientists, but a lot of the big problems that we see with wildlife conservation have to do with the laws in the area. If you want to stop poaching, the best way to stop poaching in parts of Africa is to pass legislation against it and then also make sure that there are fair trade employment practices going on so that people have a way to earn a living that isn't going into the local forest poaching wildlife and things like that. So if you want to help wildlife, the best way to do it usually is through 
civic engagement, not only of people here in the states, making sure that they're aware of environmental issues and can cast votes, support different nonprofits and things like that, that are working towards those environmental goals, but working in C2 in those countries with the people who share the space with those animals. So it's, I, I would say that we, we do see ourselves as a space for civic engagement. I wouldn't say that it's what we set out to do in the morning, but that is a huge part of why we exist. And we have people who are you know, solely dedicated to that. We have a whole department at the zoo that is just focused on conservation. That is what those people do. Dawn till dusk every day is just focus on ways we can help wildlife from a conservation perspective. Yeah, I mean, I, I didn't think about it really, but every time I go on vacation to a new city, one of the things we do while we're there is go to the local zoo. Yeah, you know, to learn about what are the different animals that they have and what is it that they're going to show me that I maybe haven't had an experience to see someplace else. And it's always, I think, a really interesting way to get to know a new uh, a new space, um, and know more about the people in the, and also, right, the environment and animals that are there. So talk to me then about visitor education. How high of a priority do zoos place on this visitor education? And really, what are the goals of educational outreach? Is it just conservation or is there something else that um, is, a, is a high priority goal? So we place an enormous emphasis on education. We have an entire conservation education department that is staffed by people who have backgrounds in formal and informal education who are looking at ways to engage people in a lot of different um, ways. So we have people who are focused on elementary students, people focused on high school students, people who focused on distance learning, people who are focused on uh, the camps and the immersive programs that you do when you come to the zoo. My department that I work in, we do a lot of outreach to different spaces in our community that want animals to, so like if you have a local festival, or if you have a big fundraising event and you want the zoo to come bring animals, we'll absolutely do that. We know we have that awesome, you know, wow factor with bringing live animals into a space. But while you're there taking a picture of the sloth, we can talk to you about rainforest conservation. And when you visit the zoo, I, I think this is just me speaking as myself, not for the Columbus Zoo Aquarium, but there's a really fine line that you can tread in any uh, quasi-educational space where you can go too far, where you just feel like you're bogging people down, you're giving them too much information. And then on the other end of that spectrum, you can have experiences where you have a captive audience, you have an opportunity to get a message across or to try to impart a little bit of something to people, and you let it go by. So it's sort of finding that beautiful space in between. So when you visit the Columbus Zoo, we have awesome engaging signage that can both teach you about animals, but also about conservation issues. And if that's not really your speed, you're not a reader, you can listen to a zookeeper giving a talk or one of our educators giving a tour. You can go to a show where we show you how fast a cheetah can run. And then we tell you about the problems facing them in Africa and what you can do here as a person in Ohio to help. So we put an enormous emphasis on education. And especially during COVID, that's been interesting because we're finding different ways to engage with people. So we offer um, curriculum-based programming for students who might be at home just about every single day. Our education staff is doing live Zoom seminars. We're doing things on our social media that people can log on to to learn about our different animals and kind of what they're doing right now and also what you can do at home to still be engaged. And we look for pretty much any way that we can get a message in that's still a little bit hopeful. And 
the unofficial motto of the Kalamazoo, I would say, is touch the heart to teach the mind, which is the, I really like it. It's, you know, simple. It fits nicely on a post-it. It's something easy to remember. But basically, it's saying, I want to engage a person. I want them to first feel an emotional connection to an animal, which might be through having fun. It might be an immersive experience. And if you learn something during that time, that's fantastic. And you'll hopefully impart that a little bit more than if I'm just throwing information at you. So we place an enormous value on visitor education, but we want it to come about in an enjoyable kind of organic way, I guess. So you mentioned that, uh, especially during this time, that you guys have started to kind of respond a little bit differently because obviously we're all in shelter in place or stay at home orders. So what was the Columbus Zoo's response to the coronavirus? We've been following what the governor says more or less. And our CEO is working very hard. He's working at a state level as well to kind of just try to be part of understanding the state's response, how we can keep people safe. So right off the bat, once we close the park, we switch to remote working for all of our non-essential staff, which is a lot of people who worked in a more administrative capacity, people who were in our administrative building, switch to a working from home space. And then our essential staff, mostly people who do maintenance work, animal care, security, and grounds maintenance, were all still coming into the zoo. We instilled social distancing protocols. We started working on smaller teams so that there was less overlap. And we started wearing masks all year round, no matter what time from the first existence of the Columbus Zoo, basically any time that we worked around primates, so gorillas, orangutans, monkeys, lemurs, we always wear protective uh, masks things, uh, and things like that, just to make sure that we're not passing anything to the animals, they're not passing anything to us, because primates are so close to people. And then about a month ago, a story came out at the Bronx Zoo that one of their tigers had tested positive for COVID-19, which is interesting because up until that point, we didn't really think that COVID was a zoonotic disease, something that could pass easily from people to animals. And that kind of changed everything in the way that we were doing things. We were already being very careful, but we switched to wearing masks all the time, anytime we were around our animals. I believe that's still the only incident in a zoo or aquarium where a big cat, anything that's, you know, a big animal has gotten COVID, but we immediately switched over just to being safe. And then unfortunately, we issued a press release a few weeks ago, we did start to furlough some of our continuing staff and eliminate some positions as well, just in an effort to stay up with the times, but we are working very hard to get open again, we're coming up with plans to make sure that when you visit the park, you're safe, you're socially distant, but we can start getting people back to experience our animals again, because we miss our visitors and we hope our visitors miss our animals too. Absolutely. The work that you all are doing, I mean, pre-COVID, but also now, I mean, I think is really inspiring. And we've had the opportunity to talk to a lot of people across Northeast Ohio and across the country, uh, actually, about how this has changed their work. And so hearing from you about, you know, what this looks like at the Columbus Zoo, I think is really inspiring to think about. This is a really challenging time for a lot of people, but how we're continuing to adapt and respond and provide care and outreach at the same time, right? So that it's not all crisis. It's also thinking about kind of how we do this together and how we deal with this together. And so 
you've alluded to this already, but you know, if you could talk to us a little bit more about how you all are using technology to continue to engage visitors. What are some of those strategies that you all have adopted to continue your, your outreach efforts and your visitor education, uh, even from afar? So in the age of technology that we're living in right now, everyone just about has a smartphone, which has proved enormously helpful, especially for us, because in normal non-COVID times, we have a uh, staff of people who are professionally trained photographers and videographers who can come around, get high quality video photo of all of our animals doing things. They produce these amazing videos, these awesome photo series. And now, because we're limiting staff crossover and things, we're not able to have them come and cover stuff. So I do not envy them, but they're they're taking all of the cell phone footage from keepers across the zoo and making it look presentable. But it's really cool because we can still be sending updates on our animals. We've had a couple photos go fairly viral, if you will, of some of our keepers wearing their protective masks, taking selfies with the animals to show that we're still here we're still caring for the animals. So that's been huge, just showing people that we're still there, that the animals are waiting for them to come back. And our education department has really done an awesome job of getting things together to go online. Like I said, they do a lot of work through Ohio approved curriculum. So if you are educating your kids at home right now, the zoo is offering online learning platforms, online learning seminars and things that go along with Ohio approved curriculum. So you could have your science lesson for that day be what the zoo is putting up online. And if you go to columbuszoo.org under the education tab, they have a lot of those experiences up there. We're utilizing social media really heavily to put up challenges and activities that you can do with your kids during the day, but also to keep everybody informed of what we're still doing on a day-to-day basis at the zoo. So technology has been absolutely humongous in keeping everybody up to date. Uh, my boss, Susie Rapp, is, uh, has done a couple remote radio interviews just to kind of keep people in the loop because one of the big things that is still happening is we're opening a new region at the zoo, which is going to have some of our ambassador animals on exhibit for the public. And we're also uh, bringing sea lions and harbor seals, which is really exciting because we haven't had those at the zoo maybe ever. And if not ever, then it's been a really long time since we've had them. And we've been so excited to show that to the public. But with COVID, we're going to approach in a very different way. So being able to have people send us footage of the animals from their cell phone and pictures and then provide the messaging in a written format. It's a little bit different than what we normally do, but we're still able to get our messaging out there. So it's it's been exciting. It's been hectic, as I'm sure it has been for everyone. But we love that we still have the opportunity to get our message out there, to engage people, to show them that, you know, just because we're in COVID doesn't mean that we're not still doing the work that we set out to do. And as an animal keeper, you know, we we can't just turn the lights off, wait a couple months and come back. Like our animals every single day need to be cared for. And even before we went into COVID, you know, I work weekends, I work just about all major holidays. We're there at night. If an animal's not feeling well, we're there with it 24-7. So that hasn't really changed for us. The big difference is we don't have the visitors coming to us anymore. So we're finding more ways to go to the visitors. I love going to zoos. And and one of the things I really appreciate about zoos is that it's fun for people of all ages. Obviously, kids love zoos. Kids love animals, right? (laughs) Even as an adult, 
just really a lot of uh, fun to learn something new about an animal, even one that I thought that I knew, and to learn something new about either its behavior or maybe I didn't know about some of the conservation efforts that are needed to keep it going. You know, so I, I think that that's one of the things I really appreciate about zoos is that they're just for all ages of people. Are there ways, I'm wondering now, that this pandemic and the shutdown have affected zoos that maybe we as the public wouldn't think about uh, or wouldn't hear about really? Just like a lot of different businesses, there's different structures. Some zoos are privately operated by a board as a nonprofit. Just about all of them are operated as a nonprofit. Some are still run by cities. That was more common back in the 1920s and 30s, where every city had a zoo and it was a municipal department, just like water or parks and rec or what have you. So some are still in that setting. So depending on where you are, it's affected us all a little bit differently. One of the biggest things, though, and it's, I have to say, it's really affirming for us as animal keepers, is that the animals really seem to miss people. And the best example I have of this is I was walking down a pathway in front of our petting zoo the other day where we have goats and sheep and cows uh, to go get uh, lunch that day. And I was walking down the pathway, and as I was crossing in front of it, all the goats and sheep ran up, and they were just staring at me and bawling, like, hey, you want to come over and say hi to us? You want, you want to come say hi? And that was really affirming because it's like, okay, you know, they, that interaction that they have with people is something that they seek out. So that's, that's been really interesting. Uh, some of the other ways, though, with the smaller teams, with focusing on different things, we're not able to do a lot of the things we would normally do, like our public demonstrations. We're not able to get some of the really big projects done where we would normally have a lot of departments working together, a lot of people in one area. So that's been a little bit different for us, but we've been able to use our time in different ways. So right now we would be focusing a lot on getting the animals out on display for the public at certain times and making sure that we're doing all of our demonstrations. But without the ability to do that now, we're focusing on other things. So we're getting those cleaning projects done that we never have the time for. We're building more toys for the animals that we normally don't have time in the day for. In my personal case, I've been able to focus on our spotted hyenas and teaching them a voluntary blood draw behavior where they stick their arm out and our vets are able to come in and voluntarily uh, draw blood from them, which my dogs at home pull on a leash really badly and like we can barely clip their nails, but my hyenas let us draw blood from them voluntarily. So I kind of take that skill and check it at the door when I come home, I guess. But yeah, they we've for sure felt the impacts in a in a lot of ways, but we're making the best of it. We're happy that we are still able to provide top-notch care to the animals even now. And just judging from online, we are still getting an enormous amount of support from the community. So it's all been really positive. For our listeners, what are some ways that the public can be involved at this time? What do you see as ways that we can support you? So for one thing, just going online, looking at our social media posts and sharing them whenever possible is huge because that increases our reach, taking part in our education programs, the virtual ones that we're offering is huge because it shows that people are engaged and they're interested in the content that we're offering. We still are able to accept donations if you're in a financial place to do that. And you can contribute either to our conservation efforts because we're still keeping on top of all of our mission-based work. You know, we want to, we need to keep the lights on. We want to keep our animals very well cared for. But we take our global commitment, our global conservation responsibilities very seriously. That has not wavered at all. And then also we're in a position to accept donations for our capital projects, you know, just 
keeping the lights on the day-to-day running of the zoo as well. So if you're able to contribute, that's great. But honestly, just staying engaged with our information, making sure that you know, you're know you up to date on what the zoo is doing, sharing the stuff that we're putting online, interacting with us online. We love it. We love seeing the support from the community. And it's nice as someone who's working there, when someone goes on and says, thank you for what you do. You know, you don't do it for that, but it really makes it hit home because I, I do what I love. I'm so fortunate to have a job that I wake up every single day and I'm genuinely excited to go and do it. And when you hear somebody say, I had such a great time the last time I was there, or uh, recently I had someone, not to me, but commented on the zoo's Facebook page, we really love meeting the vulture the last time we were there. And our black vulture, Ronaldo, is like half the reason I wake up every day. I love that bird so much. But hearing that he impacted somebody and that they learned about vultures, they've got a different view of vultures. I mean, that's why we do what we do, because we love getting people engaged with animals, caring about the natural world. And then hopefully taking steps in their own life to, you know, help wildlife, help the environment. So any way that you can show your support, we are very thankful for. And then once we're reopened, we want to see you. We want to see you there safely. We want to see you there engaging with our animals again in a safe, socially distant manner. So once we're open, we'd love to have you back. We've asked a lot of people that we've interviewed, what are some good, positive, you know, news stories, some success stories? Uh, stories that have come out of this. And I know that sounds like kind of a a weird question to ask that we're in a pandemic. There's got to be something that's happy, right? (laughs) So what are some uh, good news success stories that have come from this that you can share with us? So like I had alluded to earlier, one of the weird things with, you know, working with live animals in any facet is that that wheel just keeps on turning. You know, there's not really a pause. There's not a step back because once you're finished with today's work, you come in tomorrow, everything is going to need fed, cleaned, enriched, trained, watered, everything all over again. There's something comforting in that. Uh, there's also sometimes it's like, man, I'd really just love a break, but nope, I've got all these other things I'm worried about. I've got all these other things I'm devoted to. You got to just keep going into it. So just seeing that, you know, we're still going in, we need to make sure that everything's well cared for. We've had births take place while this is happening at the zoo. Uh, springtime is always a really exciting time for us because once the temperatures are up, we're able to get the animals that might not be as cold tolerant back outside. So the other day I saw our giraffes out in our savannah for the first time this year. And that was really exciting. And, you know, this is just me being anthropomorphic, but it's kind of funny because they go out and you almost see the animals looking at the pathways, like where the heck is everybody? There's normally a line of people here ready to feed me lettuce. Like, where where are all these people that should be here right now? And the other thing is, like I said, you know, we, we do miss having our public here. We want everybody back as soon and as safely as possible. But right now, to have the ability to say the time that would normally be spent doing a keeper demonstration or a keeper talk, I'm able to build this new toy for my animal. I'm able to train this new behavior. I'm able to finally you know, clean out this shed that I've been putting off for two years and getting everything done. So we're able to use our time to make sure that we're in a position where people come back, we're able to give them the best experience right off the bat, we're able to keep our animals mentally and physically stimulated and engaged, which is a huge, huge part of what we do. And we've had our baby polar bear cub go out and start swimming in our big pool for the first time. So being able to have that still happen has been super, super exciting for us. We've had, like I said, we're getting all of our animals back outside into the yards, which would happen even if visitors were there. But it's 
it's seeing that, you know, that we're still there, we're still taking care of the animals, and we are so excited to have people come back when we can do safely. So we'll get there. We're doing well. One other positive news story is that people, um, because they can't go to the zoo, are drawn to your social media accounts. I've watched a lot of your YouTube videos. So now there's like a broader, you know, understanding and knowledge that those things are out there and that people don't necessarily have to visit the zoo and that's the only time that they can see this stuff it's great that you guys offer that too that's that's an excellent point you know just knowing that we have this platform and what a lot of people are talking about in media now too is that a lot of companies that have said well we can't do this this isn't possible and now you've had to make it possible to do all of this remote outreach and remote working and things it's like oh i guess we could i think that once we're back to a little bit more normalcy knowing that we still have this card to play is humongous, knowing that we can make such an impact on people who, if you can't, you know, come through our gates and see our animals in person, we've already proven that we can still impact people. We can engage them with wildlife remotely. Let's keep doing that. We've seen, you know, I think that the point about building up our audience is awesome. We had someone comment on one of our posts I happened to see the other day. I was like, hello from Sweden. It's like, holy cow. I didn't even know you knew about Ohio, let alone, you know, our zoo. That's amazing. So we, we love the the reach that we've been able to get. Yeah, that's an excellent, excellent thought. I love it. I Just the work that you all are doing, we really appreciate it. And as you know, this podcast is really about thinking about how we govern through pandemic and organizations like yours, the Columbus Zoo, are a key part of that, right? So that we continue to do this work that we don't become so narrowly focused on this one piece of how we're dealing with the day-to-day during a pandemic. But, you know, conservation is still important. Animal welfare is still important. How we're, and how we are educating people on these topics is still important. And so we really just appreciate the work that you're doing and your willingness to come and spend time with us today. So thank you so much. Very, very glad to be here. Yeah. Thank you for the opportunity. Thanks for listening to the Growing Democracy podcast. I'm Casey Boyd-Swan and my co-host is Ashley Nichols. Our podcast is edited by Jeremy Demery at Gold Knox Studio right here in Cleveland, Ohio, and supported by the American Political Science Association. If you like our show and want to know more, check out our website, growingdemocracyoh.org. Join us next time when we talk to Mayor Annette Blackwell, Mayor of Maple Heights, Ohio, 